Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 185. So glad you could join me. Today's guest is Jennifer Reeser with her book, Strong Feather. We'll be talking to her in about 10 or 15 minutes. But before beginners should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We just do this we love poetry, and we know you do too, so please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Ring the bell for notifications. Leave reviews on iTunes and Spotify and Amazon and Stitcher. Anything you could do to help spread poetry around the internet would help a great deal. Um, before we start with the main guest, though, we always like to start out with the news poems, because it's fun to have poetry relating to the news. And uh, we have Sunday's Poet here with us. Um, Sarah Snyder is here to talk about the Oscar slap, the, the slap heard around the world, which is all anybody was talking about a year ago today. And um, here is Sarah Snyder to talk about it a year later. Hey, Sarah, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. It's, it's just, I love having you on. And I did not watch the Oscars, I have to confess. Did you watch the Oscars last night? No. <laughs> yeah, me either. I slept. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was just having, I was actually at a used bookstore for the whole, the whole time of the Oscars, like two hours. There's a great one uh, down the down the, the road from us. But um, so tell us about, about how this poem came to be. Chris Rock finally responds to Will Smith's slap, a kind of memoir. And, uh, and, and we all know, we've all seen the slap, uh, which was last year. I remember driving home from something else and, and hearing about it and everybody was talking about the slap all over social media. So, so what, explain, just frame the poem. What, how did it come to be and, and what is the slap and what did it mean to you? Um, I think for me, one of the things that I really enjoy is writing poetry based on newsline, like headlines kind of articles, simply because here you've got an editor or whoever is kind of promoting this article, boiling down the article or whatever it is into its like most juicy form enough to get you hooked, but not enough to make it so that you don't want to read the article. And so when I saw that line, Chris Rock finally responds to Will Smith slap, like almost a year afterwards, I'm like, finally, like, have we not already heard all about this about a million times and from a million different directions? And it kind of came a part of my experience during that time where here was this kind of wild public thing happening whilst like a really wild private thing was happening to me mm -hmm. and just finding a way to weave the two together it just kind of tumbled out in that way and this last um couple of months have been poetry has been a really empowering and cathartic experience dealing with grief mm -hmm. Yeah, it's because your your father passed away a year ago, mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. and it was interesting too. I hadn't I hadn't thought of this fact, but it, but it, but but so many people. I think there were three separate people who wrote to me. You know, one on Facebook and a couple emails saying that they had the exact same experience that they'd always watched the the Oscars with their parents, and so having it on, um, you know, tonight or, or that night yesterday. Uh, was something that, that brought back a lot of memories, you know, for the parents who are now gone. And so it's it's really one of those strange things where generations sort of have a lot of shared memory around. And um, and so, you know, you weren't alone in feeling that that connection to your father as um, as the Oscars were going on. Um, well, do you want to go ahead and read the poem? It's um, Chris Rock yeah, sure. finally responds to Will Smith's slap, a kind of memoir. So let's hear it. <laughs> All right. What happened last awards season? last season when the it colors were different 
Zendaya was amazing, is amazing. I am in love with her. My father was unwell, as usual unwell, is always unwell. Maybe more than unwell, but we were ignoring it. No, we were not ignoring it, he was. Did you know that you can get addicted to oxygen? You can. Everyone gasped when that man's hand with a man's anger hit that man's face with a man's shock. He gasped too, getting up to pour another glass of cheap Chardonnay. Gasped the way a bullfrog gasps, deeply and from some cavernous place within. The buzzing about what to do, who should do it, what do you say, oh shit, on live TV no less. The spectacle of seeing him on the stretcher so helpless looking in the daylight. An emergency of red and blue lights haloing his confusion his embarrassment. The cameramen have no idea where to point. Cut to commercial. God, what the fuck was that? Why do I feel like I got hit? My brain is screwing up the past with right now. Right now is not when he got hit. That was the past. Now it is all we're talking about because we secretly hope it happens again, even though now there are rules and procedures. They had to remove his toe. It had gotten so bad they took it, and I'm thinking about it now, and I think that I hate that they took his toe. Will they take my toe when the time comes? That was last year, and this is this year, and it's almost award season again. No, it is award season again. Zendaya is still amazing. I am still in love with her, and my dad is still dead. Yeah, very touching poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Sarah. Thank you. And for being a guest tonight. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you. I yep. appreciate it. Yep. Nice care. to meet you. Yep, you too. Bye. That was Sarah Snyder with uh, yesterday's poem, Chris Rock Finally Responds to Will Smith's Slap, a kind of memoir, really touching, moving poem, um, and, and just so much, um, so many great lines in that too. So thanks so much for sharing that, Sarah. Uh, let's take a quick look at today's poem. Um Ayelet um, Amate is today's poet, Wandering Womb. And usually we have um, poems from the issues um, on Monday. Usually it's Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, or poems from the last issue of Rattle that we're adding online. Um, but we decided, or I decided, I should say, I guess, that, that we need to catch up because the last issue had, had this long um, heroic crown of sonnets by Anna Evans, so it had fewer poems than normal. And so we... Um, we ended up with this thing where we're moving on to the new issue like too soon a little bit. And so I decided to do a little bit, you know, poetry spawn poems early. And all this week we're interested to be doing old poems that aren't online or that we want to pull up and highlight from, from past issues over a decade ago. And so we started out doing that with, with having poetry spawn on Monday. And so we have today's poem too. Um, Ilet's traveling can't join us today, but here lets her read. This is what she says about it first. This is um, Ilet Amate. And uh, here's her description of what's going on with the poem. Um, I was moved by this article on Bindi Irwin's struggle with endometriosis. As a nurse practitioner, I work with many patients who have this condition, which is rendered invisible by society's refusal to talk about periods and other ways women's health affects us all. I wrote this poem as a testament to those patients, including Bindi Irwin. And um, endometriosis is kind of a mystery, um, and, you know, I was reading about it. I didn't know much about it myself, which is one of the things that makes it interesting to have a poem about because, you know, I get to learn about it and every readers get to think about it for the first time, maybe, if, it's, if you don't know somebody who suffers from it. But as I understand it, it's basically um, that, um, that, that, that female tissue is sort of all over the body. And so, so tissue around the body responds to hormone changes in a way that's very painful and difficult. And so... Um, 
And so that's what Bindi Irwin is struggling with and, and exposed on this show. And then here's this beautiful poem, A Wandering Womb by Ilet Amate. Let me let her read it for you. And uh, let's just enjoy this poem today and, um, and think about the issue. It's a wonderful metaphor here too. So let's take a listen. Wandering Womb Ancient texts named hysteria the source of bodily ills. The womb, an animal inside an animal. The littlest Irwin has been studying animals again, this time her own. Cells migrating from the uterus like a great flamingo flock through the tissues. Blood fattening the growth, the pain like a great cry or singing. Let us speak of blood, of the ringing out of the lining that fed each one of us. Don't you know how a woman pours herself like a jug of wine? I mean each of us, an enchantress, pulling ourselves through the sleeve of ourselves in our own birth. And again, that was Eilat Amate with Wandering Womb. It's a beautiful poem. Um, and, and that metaphor of the flamingo is just so original and, and interesting. So a great poem to raise awareness about that. That was today's poem on Rattle.com. Of course, if you're not subscribed to the daily poem on Rattle.com, you can go to Rattle.com and sign up for the daily email. So anyway, we're going to take a quick break and go to Jennifer Reeser, today's main guest. So sit tight, uh, relax, and I will be right back with Jennifer. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Like I mentioned, today's guest is Jennifer Reeser. Jennifer is the author of six collections of poetry, most recently Strong Feather, this new book from Abel Press, also the author of Indigenous, also by Abel Muse Press, which won um, the Best Poetry Book of 2019 by Englewood Review of Books, Reeser's poems and reviews and translations of Russian, French, along with a Cherokee and various Native American Indian languages have appeared in Poetry, Rattle, the Hudson Review, all sorts of other places. Um, a biracial writer of European-American and Native American Indian ancestry, Reeser was born in Louisiana and now divides her time between Louisiana and her land on the Cherokee Reservation in Indian Country near Telequa, Oklahoma, capital of the Cherokee Nation, of which her family is a part. And here she is, Jennifer Reeser. Hey, Jennifer, how are you doing tonight? Hi, Tim. Hello, hello. Thank you for having me on. And thanks to everybody for showing up to listen yeah, it's my pleasure to have you. I, I, you know, I've been a fan of your work for so long because everybody knows who watches the show that I love formal poetry, and you're one of the poets who really you know takes advantage of all the possibilities formal poetry has to offer in your books, and and we love Able Muse Press. So it's cool to finally meet you. Um, do you want to start out with a poem? Yes, uh, I I think that I'll open up with a little bit of light verse. Uh, this is called "On an Observation" by Yeats. And it is from Strong Feather. As you can see, my both of those are behind me on the on the uh, the desk. An observation by Yates with the epigram. No matter what one doubts, one never doubts the fairies. For as the man with the Mohawk Indian on his arm said to me, they stand to reason. W. B. Yates, the Celtic Twilight. The man with a Mohawk Indian tattooed upon one arm would doubtless call it treason, or at the least primordial and crude to doubt the fairies, for they stand to reason. 
the man with a mohawk tattooed on his arm may sneer at the idea of water horses or fallen angels or a hell to harm to place unwavering faith in fairy forces. Yeah, and that was um, an observation by Yates from Strong Feather, uh, the newest book from Able Muse Press by Jennifer Reeser. And, uh, and it's a beautiful cover. They did such a great job with this book, Jennifer. I think something to be proud of for sure. Um, Thank you. So what can you tell us about, um, about Strong Feather as a character and, and how the book came to be? Because for people who haven't read the book yet, of course, it just came out or, or hasn't even released yet, technically, I think. Um, you know, Strong Feather is a character that starts out the initial poem and then you move through Strong Feather poems and also your own personal poems and sort of it weaves the two in between this persona character um, from deep history and your own poems. So how did that, that come to be? Well, the first poem in the book is kind of an explanation of it. It opens up uh, in, a, in a form, uh, a received received form, that kind of explains how it happened. It was, uh, I actually woke up one morning uh, and found this feather that was that had been underneath the, the covers. I had no idea how it got in there. I hadn't been on a walk or, you know, I don't have down pillows. And so, uh, you know, it was it was just... It was just a very strong feather, and and as you can read in the in the uh, the very first poem, there it started my thinking on different uh, different tangents about it. And I had you know I'd kind of been seeking a a, uh, a new subject, and I thought the phrase "strong feather" just struck me, uh, you know, so strongly that I I had to do something with it. So. So I just came up with what if what if this could be a metaphor, uh, you know, for for a Native American, mm-hmm. and then I developed the book around that. Yeah, um, yeah, it's just a beautiful book and, and a great character. You you don't see very many persona poems lately. It's sort of something that's gonna gone out of style yeah. a little bit, and um, it's really cool to see a poem, you know, with that persona as the web, you know, the thread that weaves through the entire book. Mm-hmm. Um, but before you go on, can you? I don't know that the staticky issue. I think to me is is worse than it was before. Do you have an external okay. microphone? Can you maybe like unplug it? Is there like an external microphone you're using, or is it just your computer? No, it, hmm. this, this is this is this is all my on my laptop. Sorry. Yeah, that's really strange. I don't know where it's coming from, but it's definitely okay. Well, we'll try. It's it's sort of better now. I don't know. We'll see if anybody watching, tell me if it's okay. not too bad, and we won't worry about it um, on the chat window. Yeah, yeah. So Carlos here in the static too. Um, yeah, well, that was kind of going away, so maybe, hopefully, we'll just we'll just pray for it to to go away because I don't know what else to do. We tried a little bit in the pre-show to see if we could troubleshoot any of that, and there was nothing to do. Um, yeah. But anyway, so so um, so so tell me about your your background in poetry. I'm always curious how poets became poets, but especially you as such a great formalist. Um, you know, all this book, I think the entirety of the book is in formal verse. So how did how did you come to to fall in love with formal poetry, and why do you choose to write informal verse when everybody else seems to um to not? My I, I was an army brat. Uh, my dad was a warrior, and my formative years, my very first years, were spent on army bases. And my mother says that my favorite thing to do was to stand at the window. And listen as the soldiers went past, uh, chanting their cadences. 
And she said that that she would just that I would spend forever at the window going with uh, chanting their cadences with them. So apparently I, I loved it even from the beginning, uh, just the sound and the, the the march and the rhythm and all that. But then I really started writing uh, seriously when I was 11 years old, believe it or not. We had a creative writing uh, assignment uh, for six weeks at a new school I was going to. And I just I just began. It was spontaneous. We would get a, a, a story starter or a poem starter at the beginning of every class when I was in sixth grade. Mm-hmm. And I, I just started writing on that. And as far as the form goes, I, it was just, it was just natural to me. So I, you know, I didn't have, I didn't have anybody telling me how to do it. I just wrote limericks because I, you know, I knew the, I, I had the the sound and the rhythm in my head. And so I was writing limericks and I was writing longer rhymed and metrical verses mm-hmm. from the time I was 11. So uh, then I just, uh, I, my very first publication actually was free verse, mm-hmm. believe it or not. Oh, really? But yeah, yeah. And my start in writing, uh, as far as uh, when I got up into, you know, the the, the critical part of it, uh, Robert Owen Butler gave me an award for uh, writing fiction, short fiction when I was 17. I, and I was in school. So I was also a fiction writer. But as far as the, the poetry goes, I guess I just wanted to make it different than my prose work. Because I I wrote in both in both uh, forms, you know, in in both genres, I should say. So I wanted to make it sound different than my fiction did, and the, the best way to do that, I thought, was was to write in form. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's fascinating because it's um you know I one of the things that I just always lament is that more poets don't write in form. It's such an opportunity to expand out um, and, and make poems memorable too. Like they seem like they have. Um, um, you know, just just more of a, of a of a like a stickiness, you know, in your mind when they have formal verse, which is what I love about formal verse. Um, and so, and I just I just love your poems for that reason. Um, Thank you. Well, for me, for me, it was just uh, you know I I said I kind of thought, well, I can write I can write fiction, you know that 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 doesn't rhyme and, and meter. Why not try? doing something different here when I get bored and I mm-hmm. still go back and forth and I do. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I love that, that story though, about, um, about uh, picking up cadences from the military. I think that's, mm-hmm. that's really cool. And, um, um, and, and I've heard people talk about in the past, um, you know, going to church is like a religious service is something that happens mm-hmm. that, that brings into the, um, experience that, that sense of, of rhythm and, and meter and things that, that come from that. So it's really interesting that military, uh, it's you know the source of that. I really love that story. Um, but let's hear another poem, and we'll we'll see how the sound works for this poem. Okay, this next one I'm going to read. I uh, there's a picture that goes along with it actually of my mother. Mm-hmm. It yeah, is. This up. It's a villanelle that I wrote called "My Mother at Lookout Mountain." This photograph of her within a cave retrieved from trash inside a travel trunk is what I love and what I have to save. Her chin is raised, her gaze is dropped but brave, as though defying how far she has sunk. This photograph of her within a cave, this scene 
set in a mountain's architrave to which the Cherokees of old once slunk, is what I love and what I have to save. Behind the camera, equally as grave, I see him taking it, her father, Monk, this photograph of her inside a cave. Madonna of the Ericoli nave, lost in a world of halo-wanting junk is what I love and what I have to save. Its edges warped to form a crumpled wave which heated time and heavy term have shrunk. This photograph of her within a cave is what I love and what I have to save. Yeah, it's beautiful. And then we'll go back to this photograph really quickly. This is a photograph of your mother um, yes. that you included. Thanks so much for sharing that. Um, yeah. And so another beautiful poem that was my mother at Lookout Mountain from Strong Feather. And we can already see the way that poems weave in and out of that persona of Strong Feather as a character and uh, in your own personal poems. Um, how did you, that's one of the things that seems really difficult. If you have this whole series of poems about a certain character um, and then how to, to make a whole book out of them without like forcing it and without, um, so how did you decide how to organize the book? That seems like such a complicated thing with a book like this where you have the character and you have the personal poems and you have sections too. There, there are several sections which you might want to describe. But um, so, so how did the, the formatting of the poems come to be? I, I actually grouped them. If you notice, they're elements. Mm -hmm. the, the sections of the book are elements. And I, when I was going through the, uh, the poems that I had on hand, the unpublished group, I, I noticed that they just naturally seemed to fall into... Uh, four elements. Hmm. And I said, I said, that just seems so natural to me. So I just began to, to look through those and categorize them. Was it, you know, was it earth, air, fire, you know, what, whatever, whatever it seemed like the, the poem spoke of. And so that's how it came about. And as far as internally organizing them, I tried to I tried to just change it up, uh, you know, uh, my tennis shots so that everything wasn't <laughs> everything wasn't coming at one time. You know, there were there were things that were that were personal. Uh, if you notice, I also have historical uh, personas that are Native American Indians from from history, actually. So I, I tried to to change it up, like I said, and, you know, shuffle them around. Yeah, were there were there certain poems that that didn't quite fit into that that rubric, or did you did, did sort of yeah, everything I, fall? And and how did you decide? Was it difficult to, to classify some of the poems? It's interesting when it to comprise a book. I I had to eliminate some stuff that you know that I had that that had been published and they'd been published in good places. It wasn't there there was no reason I, I shouldn't include them, but yeah, they just didn't fit in the overall tone. Uh, they didn't fit in with the strong feather character and. I had a little easier time with this because uh, it, it really is the sequel to Indigenous, mm -hmm. uh, uh, so so I had that that going for it. I you know, but but like I said, there were other poems that that did have uh, credits to them that I could have put in, but I didn't. Mm -hmm. So I just put it out. And, yeah, well, it's such a, a solid book throughout, and and really beautifully produced, and it's really a joy to read. Um, so, so I'd like to talk more about the formal poetry 
because 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 you do it so well and it's something that i i wonder if the reason why people don't do it as much is just because it's hard i mean how much how much training and exposure to to classical formal verse did you have did you take classes in it did you just read a lot i mean what was your how did you come to have this voice that, that moves so naturally in form well i'm actually a trained musician um uh, I was a percussionist all through uh, junior high and through high school. I was I was both in the uh, the the youth symphony where we played classical music, and I was also um, in you know regular band classes. and And they just they they sort of um, I don't want to say they engendered that in me because, like I said, going way back to the time I was three years old, you know. Uh, I, I had a knack for it, but yeah, they did fine tune it so that I could, I could, and especially it being percussion, especially being percussion. Cause those are the timekeepers for the whole group. Yeah. You know, uh, that's who everybody listens to, to keep, and they trust for, for keeping time and regularity. So I think that, that, that helped a whole lot was those years and years of training that I had in measures. Uh, we had to do these wicked wicked productions that our, our uh, sadistic uh, line director would write for us, where we'd have like alternating seven, eight, five, eight, nine, eight times. And that the whole time, the whole time we had to mark time with our feet while we were doing it. Oh, wow. And uh, it was just, so I just really, really got a, an intense training in, in those things. That's really interesting. There's something I always wondered, and I wanted to at some point like scientifically investigate this. <laughs> but, but as a formal poet is reading something like iambic pentameter, does the mm-hmm. beat come regular? Like, is it like it's like four, four or five, five time, I guess you might say. But is it like is it like that every time you get to a stressed syllable? Like, do you do people speed up? Do you think at least in your ear and mind, do you speed up as far as the timing goes? The unstressed syllables, like if there was like a. Um, you know, one of those, you know, two unstressed syllables, unstressed, you know, that kind of thing. Is that sped up in a way that sort of keeps the rhythm or is it, I, or do you I, think it's not, is it, is it timed like that? No, yeah. I think what it is is internal devices that we use like Sejura mm-hmm. and a lot of, a lot of what we do, and this is kind of the danger of over editing. I think mm-hmm. uh, I'm an editor also. We also use punctuation. Um, diphthongs are another, you know, uh, there are all kinds of speech devices and you could say that it's down on the page, but really we're hearing it in our heads mm-hmm. when we read it. We are yeah. really hearing it in our, in our heads. So anything that is available to us in speech is available to us almost, almost on the page mm-hmm. because somebody out there is, is hearing it in their head as they're reading it. So, like I said, sejura is one of the things that we use to, you know, to slow up or or, or mm-hmm. slow down a line. Um, you can also use things like uh, uh, throw in an occasional spondy, mm-hmm. which is where it requires a hard stress on two back-to-back syllables, yeah. and that will, that will slow down the line also. So there, we, we have a we have a number of things available to us other than just the jogatrot rhythm mm-hmm. of a line. Yeah, I, I wonder. I mean, so you would say that, you know, as far as time goes, like like the beat of a drum, you know, mm-hmm. like 
you know, the, the, the measure of a line. I'm not a musician, so it's, ter- it's hard for me to like, right. pull out the, <laughs> right. the right terminology. But, but so if, if, if the, the measure is like four beats to a measure, right? Do you feel that you don't feel those beats regular? Like the, the speed changes, do you, do you think, in your head as you read? Because I always wonder yeah. if you use pauses. So, so it's not really related to like a rhythmic beat in that specific sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, I, I do. I do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just really interesting because what it sort of seems built, at least one is built out of the other. I don't know if, if the music is built out of the poetry or the poetry is built out of the music, but they're they're like offshoots of the same sense of, you know, if you look at the linguistic history, there's that like yo-he-ho hypothesis. Right. That, like language right. came out of like the yo-he-ho. <laughs> so we get rhythmic <laughs> movements in our, um, in our, you know, like our, in our labor. And um mm-hmm. And, and I just wonder how much, you know, how much music came out of poetry. Do you think, where do you think, how deep do you think those roots are related? They're ancient. Yeah. They're ancient. And, uh, you know, you, you, I, I do this uh, all the time in, in my, in my research and my reading of uh, American Indian poetry. It goes back to chanting. And, you know, that is, that is formalism. Chanting is form. Repetition is form. And so uh, it, it goes back before we have recorded history. It's it's uh, it's in our blood. It's in our very beginnings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I feel like um, one of the things I think about all the time is that the way poetry's original use was to record stories and through the oral oh, tradition. And mm-hmm. and and I I feel like it, it's similar to the telephone game. You know, the telephone game where you whisper in someone's ear and right, then you go yeah. around the room, and by the time it gets back to you, it's totally changed. Because right. everybody like hears something wrong and it becomes a totally different story. But if you have it set to a form, it, then it becomes music and it becomes repeated. And we remember it in that like bodily way. And so mm-hmm. the story that's really important because it contains the myths that make the meaning that make our lives important mm-hmm. uh, becomes something that, that we can hold on to tightly. Do you, do you find that like having because I think you're the only person I've ever talked to who's translated stuff from oral. So like your translations are things that haven't been written down yet. Do you feel mm-hmm. like like that's central to poetry itself to record things and fix them so that they don't change over time? Yes, absolutely. And it it was so paramount even to the shamans, the medicine men, when they taught them they were so serious that when a candidate came to become a, a medicine man or a shaman, uh sometimes his test or her test, it was the they uh it was it was rare to have a female, but but uh, most of the time it was a, a, a male candidate, and he was made to listen to the formula once hmm. and repeat it, and they could weed you out that way wow. because you were to pay attention. And then when the formal training began, it was very strict, and sometimes in some tribes. Uh, you know, it, it was they had to they had to repeat these things exactly as it was presented to them, exactly no deviation from them because the magic was in the music to them. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, and then that's the other thing too that I always like think about is that that poetry itself is magic. It's a, it's an incantation, a spell that creates some kind of transformation, and so it mm-hmm. feels like. Um, you know, indigenous peoples know this like very directly and in a way that we, you know, 
with our, you know, all the technology and things like that, that, that we're sort of bombarded by, we have this sort of different, you know, sense of what words do, but, but words mm-hmm. have this deeply transformative property. Um, right. Can you talk a little bit about that, about how, how poems take you from one place to another? Well, I, I think that, that it goes back to the fact that a medicine man wasn't just about the herbs and, you know, the, the uh, concoctions that, that, that he would present. He was a spiritual healer as well. And I really believe that those, those internal rhythms that we have that, that mimic and they complement the natural world to which American, Native American culture was, uh, was irre- irrevocably hooked was a balm of a kind to, to the spirit or the intellect, whatever, or, or the soul, whatever you want to say about it. So I think that, you know, it was very much a dual healing process. Mm -hmm. And much of that came from the dependability, the, uh, the security of, of repetition, saying thing, something over and over again, you know, you start to believe it for one thing when you, when you're chanting Mm -hmm. these of things so it's very much a spiritual process as well yeah it's just so fascinating like the idea of affirmations that some people do you know just Mm -hmm. saying like you know this is my goal and this is what i want to do and then it ends up it seems like the universe replies somehow and maybe it's the way that it changes our own state that we're more receptive to like possibility but there is something like magical about language itself um, mm-hmm. And especially when it's repeated, especially when it has music and rhythm that, that changes somehow our consciousness. And I, God, I don't know how, how to articulate it or explain it, but there's something magical about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, well, let's hear. I want to, we've been talking a lot. I want to do a lot of poems. So let's do um, the next one up. <laughs> I, I keep forgetting. I always at least love talking to guests, but, uh, yeah. but we got to do poems too. So let's do another poem. Right. Okay. Well, this one, this next one is... Um... It, it takes a quote from a famous crow chief who is named Plenty Coup. And this is called Villanelle on a Line by Plenty Coup. The ground on which we stand is sacred ground. The blood of those we love, silt, peat, and sand. For this, we and our children too are bound. If you must probe it, make your dig profound in order to find nature's share of land. The ground on which we stand is sacred ground. Our forebears fill its surface, spin around, take up a fistful, sift it from your hand. For this, we and our children too are bound. With roots to weave their long braids, parched and browned, by burnt lip and bad war deed they are clanned. The ground on which we stand is sacred ground. On this we dance, the drums of sunlight pound as their life forces and their love demand. For this, 
we and our children too are bound. Where other than in wind may they be found? Our feet leave an impression like a brand. The ground on which we stand is sacred ground. For this, we and our children too are bound. And that was um, Villanelle on a line by Plenty Coup. And um, again, from reading poems from Strongfeather, this beautiful book from Able Muse Press by Jennifer Reeser. Um, I should say, if anybody has any questions for Jennifer, please leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube, and I'll pass them along as often as I can. There's already a question from Cindy Gore, who asks um, a common question for um, for poets who write formally, which is, um, do you select the form before or after you begin the poem? Do you, like, did you know that this was going to be a villanelle before it became a villanelle? Uh, or did you, in the process of writing it, did it come to be? Or was it revisions? How, did, how does a form come to be the form it ends up? Um, it, it varies. Sometimes I set out to do an exercise and, to, you know, to strengthen some particular form like the sonnet that I've got. More often, though, what happens is a phrase comes to me and it just seems to fit into a form of its own. Mm-hmm. And I think, oh, this would be this would be great as a rep- repetition, you know, and then it becomes a villanelle because of the line I feel like is is memorable and strong enough that it could it could bear repeating that many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, other times, a, a line is okay, but you know I don't want to say it over and over again because I don't I don't feel like it's it's good enough or strong enough for that. So this one, the the villanelle, I think it was like that. I wanted to hammer home what Plenty Coup was saying mm-hmm. over and over again, and so that's why I chose the villanelle form. Yeah, and that that one line. I mean, it's iambic pentameter right there. The ground in which we stand yes. is sacred ground, and right. then and then perfect. that you know, and it's a perfect line to repeat. And so it, you can see how it fits into that form, and just sort of begs you to write a villanelle. Right. So right. yeah, I think it you know it's very clear how that works. But really great question from Cindy. Um, so so how much um, you know research goes into a book like this? Is it is it because there's so many things. There are translations from from oral stories. There are, or, or, you know, there's the persona character that you invented. There's a whole much goes into it. How much research did you do to go into this book? Or was it like family stories that you knew that you just put into verse? Um, mm-hmm. or, or was there like like going to libraries and talking to people and things like that? Um, I have I have a very strong relationship with the local tribe here who are called the Kushada mm-hmm. or the Kosati. And so I spend a lot of time with them at their powwows, at the, you know, the events that they hold here. So I, I get a lot of, uh, I, I, should, I should explain that. Several of the poems in this book, Strong Feather, are lifted out of the Kushada tradition. And they are my exchanges with, with, uh, with actual, you know, uh, Kushada members in the, in the tribe here. So some of that, it, it comes from just a lot of social interaction with the Indians. And um, some of it does come from research, but I, I wouldn't call it really research. I, I read all this stuff just for my own, my own uh, entertainment, my own pleasure. So with the historical pieces and things like that, I just wanted to put down in metrical, memorable form some of the greater speeches that have been made. Uh, you know, like like Powhatan, my my Powhatan monologue, for example. I had read it, but you know, I wanted it to be in a in a rhythmic, formal, uh, 
delivery that that would be more uh, it would stay with you longer and use some stronger sound devices i guess yeah do you feel like um that that it's part of your mission to bring that culture into sort of the mainstream and let regular readers experience some of that? Is that something you set out to do or is it more something that you're drawn to? Like, do you feel like it's a personal relationship with these poems more or do you feel like that you should be a vehicle to be sharing these stories more widely? It is primarily just that I'm drawn to that. Mm -hmm. And the way that I began in the beginning was, was with indigenous. It was indigenous came about uh, because of the, the death of the very last of the American Indian family who raised me. And that was on, that was my mother's family. And when this happened, you know, they had been so quiet. My, my family had been, and uh, you know, you, these were things that you just didn't talk about. And I said, that's not right. You know, that's, that's cheating. That's really cheating people out of, of what, what, should be. And so I set out to specifically write this stuff down. I said, this st- these stories have to be told about, you know, uh, practices that were going on in my family as far as the medicine, uh, you know, right up until the 1940s. I said that ha- I have to tell this story. And so I'm drawn to it, but I also feel like it's a responsibility that has been given to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's really interesting because I can't think of that many, um, um, you know, American Indian poets um, who are writing about this. There are a, f- a handful that I can think of. We had the the chapbook that came out this winter um, from Kachui Black and, um, you know, Sherman Alexie. You know, there are certain poets that, that come out, but there aren't that many as opposed to like, you know, black poets or, or Latino poets or things like that. Um, um, why do you think that is? Why do you think there's such a, a you know, a, a lack of poets doing what you're doing right now? I think a lot of it is the outside silence that has been imposed upon us. Mm-hmm. Let me let me give you an example. In my family, uh, I have a cousin who will tell you they grew up raised we're Cherokee. Mm-hmm. They were told that all their lives. Other families will tell you, you know, a, a cousin uh, says. You never spoke about this hmm. ever, you know. So um, I I think that a lot of it is that outside imposed silence. Um, and to be honest, I, I do think that uh, that that there is a lot more timidity in the American Indian community because of that. It's just you know the generational trauma that goes along that with that. Um, I don't want to say fear mm-hmm. because a lot of times it's smart, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's not, it's not fear. It's, 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 it's intelligence, but I do want to, I do think that it's, it's a lot of hesitation and timidity about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and do you do, um, you know, do you do workshops and things like that um, on, on the reservation? Is that something that you work on? I know Arthur Z, uh, the poet in New Mexico does a lot of things like that. Um, I had a, there was a class in, um, in Arizona that, that asked for the whole, if they could have a class out of the chapbook that we just published. Um, um, mm-hmm. and, and so I know some of that's going on. Is that something that you, do you try to sort of bring, um, you know, English language poetry in, into that environment too, and, and encourage people to write? Well, I haven't ever done work, uh, poetry workshops mm-hmm. there. 
I, I tell you, I learned uh, the Cherokee language from the tribe's head linguist. Mm -hmm. um, Durbin Feeling was, was his name. And he, just a brilliant man. He was really a modern day Sequoia was what he was, but also a man named Ed Fields, who is now doing online classes for the Cherokee Nation. I, I learned from from both of those men. But uh, so so that's the that's the the university setting that I've had. Mm -hmm. And I had but I haven't ever done the actual like, uh, you know, poetry workshops and mm -hmm. stuff like that. Oh. Yeah. Well, I'm doing a terrible job. I'm, I'm so curious about, you know, all the stuff that you have to talk about, but I, we need to do more poems. <laughs> Let's do another yeah. poem. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the next one uh, is, it has to do with my persona, uh, Strong Feather, but this one is not from her lips. It is from her father. And this is in conversation. She's quite an ambitious uh, young woman. She has several things going uh, on, you know, and this is her father speaking to her sagely and wisely trying to temper her ambition a bit and it's called strong feathers father rise daughter wash your face and be a man splash ruthlessly erasing every tear then i will introduce you as my son and you will have your choice of a career. When words engulf you, ponder on this day when you and I conversed. You stilled your lip, and I advised you, set your dreams aside. For you cannot afford such scholarship as has been offered. Neither will the sergeant recruit you to the war against your will with promise to promote you to potential if you will sign provided lines and kill. Rise, daughter, once my daughter, now my son. My good-for-nothing girl, become my boy, Suck up the bitter water pooled before you. No grief displayed with even less of joy. And that was Strongfeather's Father, another poem from Strongfeather, the new book by Jennifer Reeser. And um, there's an interesting way that I noticed you read, Jennifer, which is slow. It, it's at it once slow, but also in the natural cadence of speech, which is really interesting because poets you know, tend to have that poet voice, uh, which we yeah. talk about. And you don't have that. There's sort of a, an authority to the way that you read poems. Um, why, why do you think that is? Is that something you intentionally do? Is there a way that you think about presenting poems? No, it's it's from early criticisms that I had from my husband. He would tell me, you <laughs> <laughs> would tell me, you're too monotone. I hate that. And so <laughs> so I, I really worked. I really worked on that because I didn't start out reading very well. I didn't. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, I want to keep going. We got to give you more poems. So let's do another one right yeah. off the bat. Well, you know, I just realized that I, I switched around the order of those. So I'm going to go back to the one I originally gave you, it, which is called Shapeshifter. And this is a sonnet. So this is, uh, uh, I guess, uh, the the viewers here will know what a shapeshifter is. It is, it is a being that can change form physically. Shapeshifter. They boast of loading weapons to prepare for my arrival through the hostile night. 
when sentinels intensify their sight on their objectives, difficulties, their predicaments, and too place faith in prayer. I grant them this. They may, of course, be right. But where I crawled the forest floor in flight, behind them like a dart I now split air. My structures, ever liquid and so strange, move after angry move, for all their quick and graceful wit. How shall they see me coming? Man, so inflexible he cannot change, nor ever know the tactics to that trick of light when drummers turn into their drumming. Yeah, that was Shapeshifter, another beautiful sonnet from uh, Strong Feather. And, and I just, I, I love that as a metaphor, that, um, that end when drummers turn into their drumming. Um, <laughs> it's a beautiful just way of explaining, I think, what, what feels very central to the book for me, which is um, the way that, I don't know, like there seems to be a message that we're, like everything we're sort of missing in the world is like contained within this book kind of, because there's a sense of a, a lack of spirituality and a lack of attention to the moment and attention to um, community and attention to nature that's sort of all building up in the way that we encounter the world today. I mean, whether you're talking about, you know, the environmental destruction or the speed with which we engage in life. And so we don't, you know, there's this, this massive, we talked about, um, I think last week, anxiety and depression being, um, you know, just off the charts compared to what it used to be historically. Um, mm-hmm. There's a way that we feel like we're sort of going off the rails and, and, and yeah. something's wrong. Right. And a lot right. of the things that are wrong feel like they're addressed in this book. Can you talk a little bit about that, about about the way that we engage with life and, and how, how poetry and, and the messages here are important for that? I think that that's very, very true. I think that all of our urban, uh, our urban endeavors are pulling us away from it. I think a lot of the digital experience is pulling us away from it, that we are losing and have lost so much of our connection to the natural world uh, through all these uh, virtual reality experiences that we have through our entertainment, our electronic entertainment. And uh, I really wanted to to say something because I am I am a I am committed nature girl. I mean, you know, I would just I can remember even in my childhood, I would go and disappear into the forest and I would be gone all day long, you know, and, and my parents never worried about me. But but I was just I was I would just lose myself in nature. And uh, I just, I can't be without it. I really can't be without it. So I wanted to do something that, you know, that I felt like, uh, I feel like nature heals us, whether we're actually ingesting something from it or not, Mm -hmm. just observing it, just observing it heals us in a way that we can't get from any other place. And so I wanted to put that down in in uh, the the book itself and try to try to bring that over into you know a, a lot of what I feel like is over urbanized experiences uh plastic experiences mm-hmm. yeah it seems to me like there's a way that that we are sort of 
increasingly rejecting our own bodies as like, mm-hmm. you know, like as living creatures and, and that because because the body is our connection to the actual reality of the universe and, and you know, the entire environment that we're living in. It's like a disconnection from everything that that matters. And mm-hmm. so, you know, to me, poetry is a way to reconnect with that. It, you know, it's a way to reconnect because poetry, the medium of poem is your body. You know, you, you feel right. the rhythm of a poem in the way that your speech is regulated and your breath is regulated and the breath being what sustains you. And so do you feel like you're doing that? Like, do you feel like poetry is sort of a restoration of, of what matters in life? Because that's how I think of it. Uh, yes, I absolutely do. And uh, as far as, uh, as far as that goes, I going back to our previous uh, uh, re- remarks that we were making about that. One of the, the lines from uh, that William Logan wrote once that I will never forget probably is, when something goes wrong, it's usually in the ear. Hmm. And I, I, I love that. I just love that because I think I think it's true. When something goes wrong, it usually is in the ear. It's a visceral experience that we have. And uh, that the experience of poetry, like you like you said, it brings us back into those natural rhythms that, that go on all around us. Yeah. Um, I think we have three poems left. I think we'll have time to get to all three. So let's do um okay. let's do Slain Eagle. Uh, Slain the Eagle okay. Spirit Speaks, yeah. Okay, and this is me t- doing a, another traditional thing that we do, and that's taking on the animal mask for a song. And this is called Slain Eagle Spirit Speaks. And this is actually, I based this on a, uh, a news item that I read. Uh, it, so it's I've got the, uh, the, the quote from the Argus Leader of May 16th, 2017. 14 people appeared in court this month for their involvement in illegally trafficking eagles and other migratory birds. Authorities are still looking for another man facing the same charges. The appearances come after a two-year undercover operation by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service called Project Dakota Flyer. And this is what's called a ballad. A dozen report to judicial court, for mercy is appalled. It is illegal to murder an eagle, if golden or if bald. With those who answer, a buffalo dancer inhales, then holds his breath. One man, no, two, Lakota Sioux, indicted for my death. As I fill with fury both judge and jury, the journalists relaxed, a few faces pale, a pathetic tale, head severed, talons axed. Stuffing like rags into plastic bags meant for trash, but never the noble. They divided me, who had flown so free the airplane seems immobile. No painted pony, no ceremony. No women in vexation with tears who tremble. Observe the symbol of liberty to a nation. Undercover sting to avenge my wing. These agents, by subterfuge through fraudulent talk, apprehend a hawk by playing the paying stooge. To myself, I think, with that slow, wide blink of the wounded, wizened bird. Would the verdict 
come more deserved to some my testimony heard? Shall I bring disease to enshackled knees, my assailants scorning truce? For my rightful pay, as the shamans say, from humanity's abuse? And that was slain eagle spirit speaks uh, from Strong Feather. Uh, just a, a lesson in the way, you know, because the ballad form is one of those ones that a lot of times we feel is very sing songy. And you can see the way that they're really rich in jamment. Um, you know, you play against the sing songy nature of the form by breaking across lines and, and make it sound beautiful. And, and you never know what to expect, which is the way um, that you can make a, an old form like that sound new. So a great use of that. Can you talk a little bit about your your style of um of writing, you know, itself? Like like how do you how did you know a poem like that was going to be something you wanted to write? And then we talked about how the the language itself informs the form and you end up getting the form out that. But how does the revision process go? Is it's the kind of thing where you sit down and it comes out that way naturally because you've done so many poems like this or do you do you are you the kind of poet who goes over and over again and and changes it and have a lot of revisions of each poem? Again, it varies. There are poems that I work absolutely to death and there are others that come out all of a piece and I feel like nothing ever has to be done to them. So so I'm I'm a real moody poet. I'm very moody. <laughs> it's never the same with me. And I really can't even predict how it's going to be. But with that one, I, I think uh, what I wanted to do was I wanted to set up something that was very song-like because it's a bird. Mm-hmm. It's a bird. I mean, you know, we don't we don't really think of eagle songs, but but still it was a bird and I wanted to make it sing songy like that. And that was why I thought the ballad form would be best for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so do you um, um, how often do you write? Is that do you have a regular writing practice? Is that like, you know, every time a certain, you know, a certain time of day that you write or do you, uh, you know, do it as you sort of inspiration strikes or you have time? For decades, I wrote every single day. I just made myself write every single day. Um, but just the last few years, I guess, I, I've kind of slowed down with that. And I haven't really I haven't really felt like I have to make myself do this. I, I give myself a little bit more leeway to just be inspired first mm-hmm. rather than that hard driving, you know, work ethic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we have a little bit of time. Let's do the last, uh, the second to last poem now. Okay. Well, this one, as you mentioned earlier, um, my other home is on the Cherokee Reservation in Oklahoma. And that's, that's uh, I, I met my husband there. I went to school in Oklahoma. I had my first child in Oklahoma. And for those of you out there, there is a Cherokee Reservation. The McGirt decision is what put the Cherokee back in back on the map, as it were. Uh, before that, there is a very complicated story, but there is a Cherokee reservation and the Cherokee nation does refer to it that way. So now, you know, but anyway, when I, when, uh, when I was up there uh, working during my courtship with my husband, I worked with a lot of Cherokees and a lot of American Indians. And one of them was, uh, was, just just a guy he was a butcher that worked uh worked alongside us and he was he was Cherokee Nation well later on he was promoted to the head of tribal gaming for for the Cherokee Nation and this is uh, we would get telephone calls for him and over the PA system uh they would say Willie White Killer line one 
and that that is a common name. White killer is one of the one of the common names there among the Cherokee, and it would just it would it would just make us laugh to see the the people who weren't used to names like that to hear this name White Killer uh, over the intercom. So this is to Will White K Killer upon his promotion to head of tribal gaming. White Killer. How I miss those distant days when through our busy marketplace, your name called across the open air could raise customer eyebrows, whittling while it came, each client's pale cheeks when the violent phrase was voiced, an arrow having struck its aim. Those twilights underneath the Tulsa sun where cyclone rains, in rouge and copper run. Coercing memory, I see you still, blood streaked from throat to thigh, your knife in hand unpacking at a slab the morning's kill, shipped coldly six hours west from no man's land. A hunter tamed with introverted skill, now clothed in silk and linen, there you stand. Commander of the cards. Who knew then, Will, these tribal trails which neither of us planned? Who knew then, you a butcher, I a scribe? We each would prove so loyal to the tribe. Yeah, and that was um, to Will Whitekiller upon his promotion to head of tribal gaming, uh, a fun poem from Strong Feather. Um, one thing I wanted to ask about, too, is the sense of community within, um, you know, the formal poetry group. Um, it feels to me always that the, the sort of the, the sort of marginal groups within poetry have better communities, like the haiku community is wonderful. <laughs> and around Able Muse, which is a great press, um, there is that erratosphere, that message board that was so popular for a long time. And there's a sense that like of support that... Um, that, that people get from other people that are writing formal poetry too. Do you feel that way? How do you, how did you feel about entering that group? And, and are you, do you feel like part of the group? And, and can you say a little bit about that? Because it's interesting to me. I always wish that, that regular sort of the more mainstream poetry had that spirit of support that the sub genres have. I, we have an NFT poets issue um, coming up in the summer and NFT poets have the same kind of like just supporting each other sort of feel um, how, what's your experience been like that with Evil Muse? Uh, I, I love the place. I just, I've been devoted to it for decades, decades. You know, I was, I was online there almost, uh, as soon as it went up, as a matter of fact, and, uh, just very involved. I do feel a responsibility, but it's also a joy to me. It's not just a, you know, a, a responsibility like, like, uh, like some might say, but, but I, it's a joy to me to see, you know, the, the people taking so much pleasure in, in something like that, because let's face it, nobody gets rich writing poetry. Mm -hmm. And you know that it's genuine, especially with a marginalized group, like you said, you know that it's a labor of love with these people. And so I like to encourage that. I like to encourage love. Um, so I, I feel like, um, it is important for us to, to stick together in that, you know, when you're, especially when you are a minority and I know a lot about being a minority, I know how it feels. 
And so I want to, uh, I want to lift others up. I hate the crabs in a bucket mentality. I hate that. And I think if only, if only we could come together because there's, there's room for, there's room for us all. There really is. Uh, you know, you, you want to, you want to, you're tempted to think, oh, there's so much competition, but you really, you know, that is, a, that is a, an illusion, mm-hmm. um, you lift each other up and everybody benefits when you do that. Yeah. So, that's a great metaphor that crabs in a bucket. <laughs> I yeah. mean, so many times poetry feels like that a little bit and, and far too mm-hmm. much. Um, so, so that brings up another question just in general. Um, why is it that you write poetry? Why do you think that you're drawn to poetry? Maybe you could close out on that question. Um, is there what about poetry? I mean, we're talking about the whole episode, maybe, but but why poetry and not other genres? Why poetry and not you know doing other things with your with your life? Um, why poetry? Yeah. Um, I've always loved reading. My my grandmother used to tell the story. Uh, she, she would say that uh, Jenny. They called me Jenny growing up. Uh, Jenny could not walk from one room to the next without a book in her hand and her nose in the book. So I have just always loved words and the written word and the actual act of reading. And so it was just natural for, for me to, to start writing them. And, you know, you say and suddenly say, look, mommy, I wrote a book. I wrote a book, you know, but it was also encouraged by my family who are very literate people. My mother, as a matter of fact, uh, my, my name comes from a pact that my mother made with her best friend that whoever had, they, they wrote uh, a series of detective stories about uh, where the main character was named Jennifer. And they made a pact that whoever had the first baby girl would name her Jennifer. And I was that girl. Hmm. So great. it was very, it was, it was very valued that the literary thing was very valued in my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's great to see. We're so glad that you're doing it. Um, and we have time for one last poem. So let's close out with the last. We got through all of them, even though I thought I was talking too much. <laughs> let's do, uh, okay, let's this do one, Yeah, go ahead. This one's another personal poem. Um, uh, I'm, I'm American Indian through both my mother and my father. Uh, my mother's people come from, from the Cherokee and, and out east, but my father's uh, are from the Plains people. And when he first moved down here to Louisiana, it was during the days of desegregation. And my father's very dark. He can't, he couldn't pass. And so he would be, uh, he was actually refused service in play, you know, in some places they would say, we don't serve your kind here. And so that's the title of this poem, which is Our Kind. Hair black as plumes around the roaming crows, flesh dark as copper kettle drums when burned. My father breaks, decelerates, and slows to stop for fuel, only to be spurned. We do not serve your kind here, comes the warning. From counters stocked with ten tobacco brands by engine names. I'm with him on this morning in Seoul. I see the carved wood chief which stands beside. Cigar store statue, why remain? Vice salesman, underneath a metal signed injunction made against your very grain itself, a sad debauchery of kind. 
Why linger at those exploitative doors to scare my father's kind and mine and yours? Yeah, great ending on that uh, that sonnet. Our Kind by Jennifer Carreser from Strong Feather. Just a wonderful book. Hope everybody picks it up from Abel Muse Press. Of course, you can find Able Muse Press at ablemusepress.com. If you're interested at all in formal poetry, especially, Able Muse is like the place to be. You know, Anna M. Evans, who we talked about already on this episode a little bit, was um, through them, and so many other great formalist poets are there. Uh, wonderful press, um, wonderful uh, publisher there. Oh, what's the publisher's name? Let me. Able Muse. Yeah, what's the publisher's name? Uh, the, the oh, Alex Alexander Pepin. Alexander Pepin. Yeah, I was drawing a blank yeah. for a second, but Alexander Pepin is just an amazing person to put right, all this is. stuff together. Um, yeah, so wonderful book. Hope everybody checks it out. And Indigenous too, which you can see in the background of yeah, Jennifer's Selena. screen there. Yeah, yeah, Indigenous, the the <laughs> sort of prequel to um, Strong Feather. A pair of wonderful books by Jennifer. What you got up coming up now, Jennifer? Are you still working on a similar type of poem? Are you moving to other things, or are you sort of in a a, a limbo between the two? I I started lately writing, going back into fiction. Uh, I just yeah. had a I had a little chat book uh, with a short story that was published um, by Bell Point Press a few months ago. Uh, so I'm I'm kind of going back to the short story thing, and I think you know I'm I'm maybe gonna maybe try a novel. I don't know. Uh huh. Well, excellent. Thanks so much, Jennifer, for uh, being a guest. Great Thank to finally you. meet you. You know, in person, get to talk to you because I've been enjoying your work for a long time. So it's a Thank pleasure. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed this, and thanks to everybody for watching. Yep. Take care. It was Jennifer Reeser. You can find more of Jennifer's work at jenniferreeser.com. Um, Spell just like you'd think, Jennifer, and then R-E-E-S-E-R.com. So now we're going to take a quick break. Well, uh, we have open lines coming up. And uh, the, for the open lines, let me tell you how it works. We also going to have Brian Morrison. So, Brian, I know you're watching on YouTube. Come back to the Zoom, Brian, and we will share your uh, your poem that won the Neil Postman Award for Metaphor in just a little bit. Um, so we're going to have Brian on the open lines as well as open lines themselves. And um, so how you do it, email your poem first to openmic, that's openmic at rattle.com. That way I can show it on the screen like I was showing Jennifer's poems. Then I'm going to deploy the links to this Zoom. Um, to Facebook and YouTube. You can join us over on the Zoom only if you want to share poems. But if you do want to share a poem, whether it can be a prompt poem, a news poem about current events, it can be a poem that you published recently and are proud of and just want to share, whatever you would like to do, join the Zoom and um, and share a poem because that's what we're here for. So I'm going to take a quick break. I'll be right back with more poetry. Well, Logan, thanks so much for your patience. Now, we have Brian Morrison here, um, who is this year's Neil Postman Award for Metaphor winner for Lighting the Rocket, which was in last spring's issue. Uh, so let's say hi to Brian right now. Hey, Brian, how you doing? Doing well. How is everyone here? I'm great. Yeah, congratulations on winning this award. Um, you know, it's, it's funny. I don't know if you you probably didn't see, but on the Critique of the Week a few weeks ago, we, we sort of read your poem and on all the ones I was trying to debate between. And, um, you know, it was a very tough call between a few poems, but your poem has so many great metaphors and the whole poem is an extended metaphor too, which sort of, and it's a great, just a great memorable poem as well. So the the way the award works is we give it each year in honor of Neil Postman to um, the, the person who uses metaphor the best in every issue each year. And it's it's really a very, 
you know, it's a general way of, of thinking about it. Like we can do whatever we want, which is the fun part. Um, and it's, I think, 17 years now and lighting the rocket was this year's winner. So can you talk a little bit about how, how the poem came to be first and, and how you approach making metaphor? Because the interesting thing, when we did this prize, we thought that there'd be a lot of options for every issue. Now we have, we published about 250, 300 poems a year. We thought that maybe like that all the poems would have metaphors and it'd be like pulling out the best ones. But it turns out that there's like a dozen candidates maybe out of the, of the 250 that really use metaphor in a real meaningful way. And, um, and, and so, so it's always surprising how hard metaphors are to find. Um, so, so how do you approach metaphor and, and how did this poem come to be? Uh, a long question, but, but we'll, we'll hear what you have to uh, say. Yeah. I, I mean, metaphor is hard, no doubt. Right? Like, I mean, I think whenever I'm writing a poem, my entire goal is to avoid idle language, right? To, to keep things rolling, keep things moving, keep things active. And sometimes the best way to do that is to try to work into the in some sort of a figure of speech right a simile a metaphor um and uh, this poem came about it's a poem that i'd tried to write many times for for many years right um uh, just a sort of coming of age story uh, a, lo- a lot of what happened in the poem is really happened right when i was a, a kid we were uh, uh we were on a baseball field and we were trying to light this rocket and this woman ran by it wasn't me but you know i was with these people these other kids i think we were all like eight or nine years old and um uh some friend of mine i don't even remember which started yelling at this woman right um and it, it was just the sort of thing that i have always been interested in writing about but had it only recently obviously uh, in the past few years have really even able been able to try to write about um so i mean <clears throat> lighting the rocket started off with just this uh, basic story and i think the metaphor for me like, like i said is always just this way of trying to keep things rolling keep things in the poem moving forward right mm-hmm. um, i mean i talk to my students about the horizontal movement like this is uh, stopping to smell the roses right is how i how i talk to them about it right so in a poem, I think it's important that you have the vertical movement, you have the beginning, the middle, the ending, right? Or you have the the premise building to the conclusion. But I think once in a while you have to stop and do that horizontal movement where you where you stop and show something, build something, draw something, mm-hmm. right? So and whenever I'm writing, that's sort of a conscious uh, uh, goal of mine is always when to stop and when to start trying to work into the the figures of speech. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered the question, but no, definitely. I'm curious. Let's let's hear the poem, and then we'll talk more a little bit more in detail about it. Why don't you go ahead and read it? Yeah, sure. Lighting the rocket. It was almost finished. The rocket fuse nearly lit. Wind blew flame to my thumb, blackened it. A woman walking in grape ape purple headphones crossed the street, then sped into a jog. We yelled, run faster, bitch, or we didn't. What was said was maybe worse. I don't know what I said, but my mouth is a casket for it. What boys say to women should stop their hearts. The woman's husband stomped over not ten minutes later while she sat in the car behind sunglasses, and the shitty rocket was still grounded. 
He told us with a sharp finger we were punks and the worst kids in the neighborhood. Maybe we were. We traded black eyes and split lips just for fun. We threw ice cubes and eggs at the gas station that sold us cigarettes. Misogyny was a word we didn't yet know, and we were heart-shaped, beating ourselves against rib cages to end the moment. The man was one of us, and we knew it. My grandpa used to say he held his mouth right, and he did, the lips just so teeth set in seethe, the polyurethane caked on his chest from the fridge factory on Stoley Lane was proof enough. Stupid, he said. We knew our father's fists better than any teacher's best efforts. The man eyed the rocket, us. He saw the shame in our faces, said, fuck it, let me. And he grabbed the lighter out of my hand, quick as rainfall. The brush of his watch over my thumb was lightning to sand and left what felt like a jagged glass shard spiked into my skin. He said, women shouldn't be afraid to walk the sidewalks around you idiots. As he hiked up his gray Saturday sweatpants, picked up the rocket, shook it, pulled the fuse out, it pulls out, and lit the fucker. We all watched, close-lipped, we held our mouths right. As the white blue cylinder flew up unsteady in a high wave, was left thrown by the wind, then thudded down like a shot bird across the field. The woman, headphones looped around her neck, stepped out, picked up the rocket, and set it at our feet with a shark eye glare under raised shades. You'd be cuter kids if you smiled more. The rocket smoked right there until it didn't. Yeah, that's Lighting the Rocket by Brian Morrison, the the 2023 Neil Postman Award for Metaphor winner. It's, I love the way you talked about a poem having vertical and horizontal movement. And and so does that mean that when you wrote the poem, you know, you wrote it out and then you realized there were places you could pause and, and you, you sort of in revision, you stretched it out and add those metaphors? Like my mouth is a casket for it. The metaphor about the lightning, um, you know, the, the glass shards that, uh, of the touch. Um, is that something that you did in the revision process? I mean, maybe I'm just trying oh, yeah. to sort of help people um, come up with better metaphors. So, so you take a, when you take a poem and then add the metaphor later, is that kind of what you're saying? A lot of times, yes. Yeah. I mean, Jennifer was talking about this previously, right? Like some poems come very quickly and some some, <laughs> some take years. This one took years, right? I mean, many revisions. I couldn't even tell you which draft this is, right? Um, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, right? The first draft is uh, some metaphors fall in, right? You know, um, mm -hmm. but most metaphors, I think, definitely come in revision, trying to find places where the language gets idle or the the rhythm's not quite right or things aren't just falling into place as, as they could, right? Um, but yeah, metaphor is often something I do in revision. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Metaphor, very... any any figure of speech, really. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's very interesting. Uh, so great advice, everybody. And I hope people will try to inject metaphors in their poems and then submit them and then maybe win the award next year. And, Inject um, them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so the other thing I want to talk about too, you know, we call it the Neil Postman Award for metaphor because Neil Postman, especially in amusing ourselves to death, is his seminal book. Um, talked about metaphor as an instrument of perception, and it does feel to me like the metaphor is the way of, of sort of creating order out of chaos, like creating meaning out of like the just the mess of our lives, and then we get the order, that we get the metaphor, so we can sort of understand something, and then it ends up sliding into cliche eventually um, because. It's something everybody knows but but so because it functions like that it seems like metaphor is like the pinnacle of poetry first of all and and then and also as an instrument of perception 
you know, the, a great metaphor has a sort of like reaching beyond itself feeling. And so the whole metaphor of this, of this, like the, the childhood, I don't know, the, the childhood sort of, I don't know what to say, the feeling of coolness or something or the, the whatever, the way kids are sort of launching up and then fizzling out at the end is sort of a, a, an extended metaphor in the whole poem too. Um, how, did, how did that one come to be? Was that something that came, um, was this something you knew you were running toward that feeling or, or how, did, how did that come to be? Oh, no, I had no idea I was running toward that feeling. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I was writing about the rocket and, you know, I got to the end and I was like, well, okay, I have to end this somehow, right? This last version here and the rocket smoked right there until it didn't was the last line I was, it, it kind of hit me yeah i should probably work in more of that rocket throughout uh-huh. <laughs> right as as a as sort of a pivoting point for all of the other language to come back to right mm-hmm. um yeah i mean it, it kind of like i said it came together over many 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 revisions and, and versions right um I mean, I, I think the first time I wrote the poem, it was like four pages long, and it was in couplets. Oh, right? wow. uh-huh. <laughs> So, I mean, it's it's vastly different than it once was. Yeah, well, that's that's just great. I think I'm very glad to have you on because it's great advice to everybody. You know, keep persistent at it and keep working at it and keep injecting new ways of of getting things out, and, and it'll it'll pay off eventually. It's a wonderful poem and great great use of the metaphor. Congratulations on the prize again, and thanks well, thank so much you. for talking about thank it today. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't even know about the prize, right? Like, <laughs> I was very surprised to get it. Like, yeah, well, that's, yeah, moments. that's definitely a happy email. I was glad to uh, be yeah. able to send it to you. Thanks, Brian. It was a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Yep, take care. It was a Brian Morrison with a light in the rocket from uh, last spring's issue of Rattle, uh, this year's Neil Postman Award for Metaphor winner. If you want to check out the um, all the Neil Postman Award for Metaphor winners, we have a whole set of 17 of them and all the different ways people um, do metaphor. So we have um, – I'll show it on the screen. We have um, – a whole bunch of people here. We, you, know, uh, you know, Jim Velvis, Craig Van Ruyen, um, Jose A. Alcantara with a divorce, that, that um, divorce as like a bird crashing into a window. I love that. And The Woman Said by Kelly Grace Thomas. This is that list of so many metaphors. Just wonderful poems here. Check them out at rattle.com slash postman, and you'll find that. But um, thanks so much to Brian again for sharing that poem and, and just making poetry worthwhile. It's those, those kind of great poems that, that make it this all uh, worth doing what we're doing. So thank you for that. Now we're going to go to the actual open lines now. And uh, we have ten, nine, well, actually, we've got two. So we have, uh, one, three, we have seven people on the line. That's not that many today, actually. So um, let's see. The prompt for this week, and if you'd like to join, I should say, find the chat, find the uh, link to Zoom in the chat windows on Facebook and YouTube, and uh, feel free to do that, and join us and share a poem, anything you'd like, previously published poems, um, uh, Poets Respond, type poems, poems about the prompt, and the prompt for this week, I'll put this on the screen right now, the prompt was to write the longest poem you can in a single sentence, and that was uh, because we noticed with last week's guest that um um you know um which was james davis may that a lot of the poems in in jim's book were single sentences or maybe two sentences for a whole poem down the page so we thought we'd try to push a sentence as far as we could and write a poem this was mine um and here we go this is a a single sentence called high-end motel or no high-end hotel i should say high-end hotel 
The heavy door's high-end lock beeps behind you after the whisper click of the air against the high-end doorframe, and you shuffle down the long hall of doors like dominoes, each one sleek as midnight, deep as the hole at the center of the galaxy, each room its own universe flecked with stars as you move past at the speed of light over the high-end carpet whose lushness is not lost on your slippered feet, a fabric so soft you find yourself personifying as if you were a masseuse, your feet a massage, and it thinks... And it thinks, where did I go? Uh, and it thinks you, yes, the carpet, thanks you for pressing your heels deep into its tissue as you tirelessly trod to the elevator room, its gleaming bank of metal doors a modern ladder angels must ascend, but you descend with the rush of a fatal drop, 39, 33, so many floors, the numbers proudly speeding up, then slowing down until you reach the lobby, its celestial fears, spheres of chandeliers, and the man at the desk, his attire more crisp than bacon, more crisp than the freshest apple, more polished than and you would feel lying prone at your own funeral laced with a mortician's makeup, your face finally in death a work of art, your very casket not as polished as the high-end stone he stands behind as you ask in your most confident voice where you might find the ice machine. Where There were no signs, you see, and usually there are signs, but no, he tells you, there is a nice... There is ice, no ice machine, peon, so please proceed backward up the elevators, down our longest high-end hallway, and simply send a text for room service. So that's one sentence, as far as I could push a sentence. High-end hotel. I got to fix the typos and um, my scrolling technique. But that was my poem for this week. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it. Let's see what everybody else has uh, for the prompt or anything else. And we'll go to the hero of the day. I think Carla Schwartz is first up because she told us how to fix the audio problem that, that Jennifer <laughs> was having, I think. Um, thanks, Carla. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing pretty well. I'm waiting for the snow. Um, <laughs> oh, you're getting some snow. We are done, I hope. And, and it rained over this weekend. And um, and so, so we had that seven-footer, and, and now most of it's melted. So we have – I even, like, plowed my car into, like, a parking spot that wasn't a parking spot before. Very happy that I could do that. How much are you supposed to get? What's it, what's it like? Uh, potentially uh, – I'm in the Boston area, potentially, like, 10 inches uh-huh. tomorrow. Yeah, overnight. Yeah, I, yeah, that's a, that's a good amount. Um, so yeah. Uh, yeah, so what do you have to share with us? Let me pull it up. Uh, I forgot to go to okay. um, the yeah. Open line. So um, there we go. Uh, if it's just one poem, I'll start with this uh, prompt poem. Uh, you'll let me know if there's time for two. And um, this prompt poem, uh, I don't always write sentence poems. Sometimes I've tried to write sentence poems, and then I feel like. They need more punctuation, but uh, this is my attempt. I wrote it last night, and it's called uh, Bad Instagram, She Sang Flowers. This catchy tune everyone dances to on Instagram, I learn is called Flowers, a song by someone named Miley. I wouldn't know from a whole. Don't ask what music my head has been in. As pop as I get is Lake Street Dive and Dirty Loops because they're good. But Miley's marketers have actors like Kevin and Diane and others walking in the rain, pacing the fields, dancing, dancing. Someone paid for the song to play for me on Instagram every time I scroll. So I stop and watch the hips sway and wonder about this person, Miley, and mostly 
simply feel taken in by the paid ads and scroll on. But tonight, I turn my phone on D&D and head out for an open mic in a church-turned-center for arts to listen to original songs or original interpretations, love songs, Blind Willie, and other covers. But then one woman gets up on stage, announces she's got Miley in her pocket. Miley, the one I've learned to skip over, swipe up, or swipe down from. And now this woman, off rhythm, off key, sings Flowers by Miley. It's bad Instagram all over again. But this time, I'm I'm unable to scroll past her. All I can do is shake my head, listen, and try, try to love myself better. Oh, that's great. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. Um, yeah, wonderful poem. And I wonder, um, I love that uh, uh, it's bad Instagram all over again. That concept of bad Instagram is really funny. Um, I think uh, what we should do today probably is do like a two-page max. Let's say that. So if you have another one-page poem that you wanted to share. It's, yeah, feel it's, free. It's pretty short. I sent you a link. Okay. Um, it's my one of my NFT poems. Ah, interesting. Um, and this actually first appeared in uh, a book that I wrote. Uh, called uh, Mother, One More Thing. Okay. And uh, so this poem, which originally started as a one-sentence poem, but now isn't. It's called (laughs) Addressing What's Broken. I wish I were good with tools so that when the stove timer doesn't keep time anymore, I would know how to pull off the knob and recoil the spring or set it straight just so, so that when I turn the knob, I could depend on the ticking of minutes, the quiet panting until the annoying mechanical buzz would saw against the silence. I wish, too, I could find my refrigerator model number and know how to replace the door gasket when it arrives. For now, I'm good with duct tape. It holds two doors kissing when magnets no longer attract. Yeah, excellent poem. Thanks so much for that, Carla. And you can see, uh, for people who are not familiar with NFTs, we, like I mentioned a little bit ago, we have that NFT issue coming up in, in the summer. And uh, this is one of the, the hosts or um, places you can list NFTs. It's on the Tezos blockchain here at Object. And uh, that is the environmentally friendly and uh, inexpensive to mint blockchain. And so how that works is that the poem exists kind of forever in on the blockchain in a way that they like, can't get rid of it. Um, and so it's sort of a, a way to, to fix your poems and, and keep it here. Um, and you can purchase it right now for three Tez. So um, <laughs> if anybody's interested, and, and I think um, I'm really happy that we picked Object as sort of the one to promote the most, because now Object lets you just buy things with a credit card, which is amazing. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a new option that they didn't have like a month ago. And so um, very neat. You can you can permanently own this NFT. So thanks for sharing that, Carla. It's really fun to, you. to share I'll put a you know, link new in places. The YouTube. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. Thanks. Yeah, it's great to share new right. places we can share poems. So thanks so much. It's always fun. Thank you. Yep, take care. That was two from Carla Schwartz. Next up, let's go to Mike Bales. And again, I think we're going to do well, a, uh, yeah, we're going to do a two-page max is the, the well, rule I've for just today. I've just got one. I just got one I didn't prepare. There's news. I was interviewed on a program for Muscatine Public Access TV called uh, Library Alive. Oh, that's neat. I've sent yeah. you the link. You can 
flash it on the screen or not. It's up to you. Yeah, let me pull this up. So, so tell me about it. What was it that? Uh, what what, um, what are their show like? It was wonderful. I've done different interviews, but this is really fun. There's a librarian who actually hosted me, who used to work in another library, who hosted me there as a featured uh, author. Um, but she was down there as two people, as arranged through the Muscatine Writers Group, Writers in the Avenue. Um, great thing is a like a their version of the Today Show or whatever. Like I was interviewed for like 15 minutes, half hour. They first started like showing a picture of the river along Muscatine. And they were kind of chatting, then they kind of interviewed me, which is a lot of fun. It's kind of crazy. They are complimenting me on my humor. It just was the way that interview was going. I read a short story of mine that was in my book, Second Hope, and a poem that was in my book, Second Hope. And they just kind of they put me on the spot. At the end, he had a, a kind of quiz, which I kind of figured out. I kind of went, now you're going to embarrass me, but I... They're having me say what a word meant, and I figured it out. So, um, yeah, anyone who wants to watch, it'd be a funny interview to watch. Yeah, very cool. So, so we, we showed a little bit of it there. Um, you can find it at, how can we do, I guess we can put put the link in the chat window, Mike, and then people can find it. Because it, it's too complicated oh. of a link to say, but put it in the uh, in the YouTube chat screen. And then... Uh, I'll, have, I'll have to do it some other time. I don't have it. I sent it. Okay. I sent it. Well, maybe I can. I actually, while you're reading your poem, I, I can do that in a second. So let's do that. Um, but but so, what poem do you want to share tonight? It love and affection as a run-on sense. I was answering two prompts of yours uh-huh. last week. You know, write a long sense poem, and this is actually twice as long as my shortest piece of flash fiction. Believe it or not, <laughs> interesting. And also, there's something about an emotion that have a grammatical term. So it's kind of doing both prompts. Yeah, that's great. Okay, let's hear it. And this is about a long-term friendship. Love and affection as a run-on sentence. Our friendship was a river from the time when we met in her office my junior year. And I was young, our time flowing from fall to spring to an idle summer when he talked to each other just to talk. And friendship we found when later we talked about our loves and we found our friendship as we became something more something more like a dance to a soft song, a whisper in my ear, and poems shared it at her kitchen table and over tea. And I was scared and learning about life, and she knew the world, and the world turned, and our friendship evolved, and others were come and gone, water into the bridge, and senior year came and passed. And even after I graduated, we called each other time and time again, and time and time again. We talked to each other as our lives changed, but the friendship remained. And, and she put me up one night so I could see a Fleetwood Mac concert. And my life was a song. And memories flooded my mind. My mind always returned to an afternoon in the park as we embraced our precious time, captured by by our breaths, rev, reverence silent at the edge of town as traffic passed, reflections of the glorious sun and water, the whispers of trees, the river as it flowed onward, the sight of a crimson leaf drifting downward, ever downward. Oh, great use of the one sentence. Thanks so much for sharing that. Love and affection is a run-on sentence. I do. I can't help it. I love those those long running, just never ending, never let you catch a breath type poems. Uh, thanks for sharing. You see, one poets night. told me not to do that. Oh, really? But I did it for this prompt. Yeah. <laughs> well, every rule is meant to be broken. That's what the rules are here for. <laughs> so thanks for doing that and sharing it, Mike. As always. Okay. Thanks. Yep. Bye.
It was Mike Bales with a love and affection as a run-on sentence. Um, and I remind you that if you'd like to join, go to the Zoom link, which is deployed and pinned on uh, Facebook and YouTube's chat windows. And we have a two-page poem or two page max today. So uh, one poem that's like longer, or two poems that are shorter, whatever you would like to do. Dick Westheimer is up next. Let's see what Dick's got for us tonight. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How you doing? Um, I'm... I'm such a happy guy. Uh, Jennifer's uh, interview, and then Brian was that the name of yeah the, Brian Morrison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, those two combined are sort of uh, a little two two little master classes in one. So I'm going to go back and yeah, definitely. And I wonder if um, that I that that way that thinking about metaphors is something that you inject after the fact is something I really I'm going to have to try. Maybe that should have been like the prompt. Maybe for next week, we'll make another prompt to, to do that. But uh, but that's an interesting way to think about it. I wonder how many of the winners have done that before. But anyway, uh, what do you have that, that you'd like to share? Well, one of one other thing about Brian's is yeah. I really love the notion of sitting, like finding a place in the middle to I guess I, I don't get my horizontal and vertical correct, but this way, to go <laughs> yeah. this way. Yeah. Uh, and I just love the image of Jennifer as a little girl in front of the window, marching in time to the to the uh, soldiers out. So the whole the whole th- the whole thing was uh, uh, the YouTube the YouTube comments are worth reading for you if you get a chance. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Definitely. I'll definitely look back. Thanks. Thanks, Dick. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I thought I, I think I will read both of the poems I have. I I, I I'll first start with uh, my uh, poets respond poem, uh, uh, neologisms. I, I, I'm not really good at pronunciation, but okay. Yeah, name uh, explain what it's about while I pull it up. Then yeah, so it's uh, there was a um, uh, an article on NPR about. Um, Miriam Webster put out a tweet asking for people to come up with words that don't have precise translations into English. Oh, that's a great, that's a great prompt. Yeah. (laughs) Broader concepts. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, that, that's sort of the background for the poem. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. I got it. Yeah. Okay. I'm not going to, I'm not going to mispronounce the title again. Sorry. (laughs) Here, there are words remaining to be made. Let us coin one for the dark between the stars, that space which contains the rest of everything. Now let's conjure a single syllable for the spread of my hand covering the width of my lover's back. Oh, and can we make make a name for that time in the middle of some days when everything stops spinning, or one for the little cloud of gnats that gowns the air before me in the woods, or another the daub of light on a leaf illuminated by a single firefly. I will make a lexicon for each today and say it just to you. Every entry will be a conjugation of awe, each a declination of the sorrow that such nouns cannot exist for more than one, that one moment in which it is whispered. Here, here, Lean close as we become one another's breath. Breathe, say with me all the right sounds, and let your sigh run right through me and back out to become the space between the stars. My fingers splayed across my lover's back, the air stirred by the beat of a single gnat's wing, a small daub of light. Yeah, beautiful poem as always. And, and that really ties into a lot of the stuff we were talking about today. Um, and, and two, I keep thinking about, you know, the way that, that, that I don't know if you, 
like naming things, you know, going back to Genesis, you know, the, like the logos is that sort of spirit of naming and understanding and, and pulling, pulling order out of the chaos. And once you name a thing, it becomes like an object and then it has a, a history too, and it becomes more real to us. And, and so, and then metaphor is the way we name things. And so mm-hmm. it all like builds together into what poetry is really doing. So really fascinating. That's a great poem. Um, I love that, that cloud of gnats too. Um, There's a, a Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea trilogy, which is a children's book. That uh-huh. is one of my favorite trilogy of books. Is an entire three short three uh, book series about naming and oh. the power of names. That's and great. Then, I have to check that out. Yeah, she followed, and it's it's a great book to read to kids of any age, including my age. Um, <laughs> And later she wrote an essay for The New Yorker called She Unnames Them, hmm. which was a story about Eve, uh, like figuring out that Adam had taken control of these creatures by naming them. And she went by one by one and unnamed them. Oh, so that's they so great. Oh, that is wonderful. Yeah, I love that. I got to check that out because um, I've read one book by Ursula, but that's it. Um, very cool. So, uh, but let's do the other poem too. Is, the, uh, is this the one sentence poem? It was. It started off as a one-sentence poem, and I didn't like it. The ones that you and Carla read and and Mike read, they were fabulous. They just, like, the one sentence just propelled them. Mine just turned it into a muddy mess. (laughs) So I undid it and Uh reconnected it and took out the inner guts, and it's just a poem. Yeah, well, the goal is to inspire you, so it sounds like it worked anyway, even if it wasn't one sentence. Let's hear it. It's, it's, It's called The Hot Tub and the Piece of Wild Things. I am not sure if I am required under the Standards Committee of Poets Trading in Truth to tell you about my hot tub or the poems I've composed there, me in my loose sack of aged thin skin, naked and brined. I do know if I had not been there, submerged to the chin under the King Lear locus, it bark blind and showing more years of scarred limbs than this body of mine. I'd not have seen the bluebird, solitary and in full bluebird bloom, alight on our laundry line, sit so still that the new snow accumulated on its back. I would not have noted the peaked roof on the house across the way completely disappear under a light white blanket, would not have heard how insistent a cardinal was, even on this foolish spring morning. But I am no piece of wild things poet. These waters I recline in are not fit for the wild drake. So I wonder if I could mend the world by trading places with it, me go out naked into the highway and live wire stitched day and give the remainder of creation one moment of watching the bluebird shake snow from its wings as it rose into the gathering gray. Would I? Oh, that's just a great poem. Yeah, I love that. Hot tub and the peace of wild things. Uh, beautiful poem as always, Dick. It's always a pleasure hearing you read and uh, and seeing what you come up with every week. <laughs> thanks so much, Tim. Yep. It's been great. Great evening. Wonderful evening. Yep, thanks. Take care. So, um... Dick Westheimer with two poems. Let's go to Karen Marker next. Oh, you're on mute still, Karen. Let's see, ask him on mute. 
There you go. Uh, yeah, it's hard <laughs> to follow Dick, but um, at the same time, in a way, my poem, this poem is about naming as well. And, oh, perfect. Uh, and uh, was pulled by several influences that I won't name till I get to the end of it. Um, it was an attempt to do the one sentence, but I don't really actually think it's working and it's still a work in progress. So uh -huh. sorry, <laughs> we'll see how it sounds to you all, but I don't think it's really one sentence. Well, that sounds great. Well, with those caveats, let, let's hear it. Uh, to the created world. Yeah, let's hear it. To the created world. Let this day be a magic act, borrowed and born from the folds of the morning, a handkerchief shaken, and there pops the wings of a smoke blue bird a redwood tree lit up, lit up with branches like candles. It blows out. The wind singing happy birthday and rum tum tum diddly dum. Me and my sister and our cat singing along to the umphalos of the world issuing breath. Ding dong bell, kitties in the well. Let it be a day I understand Joyce's Ulysses crazy word creations. Find fresh fish fresh in the lazy lake. Watch them grow up, leap over the edge. Rub-a-dub-dub, three maids in a tub. Let this be my childhood film clips. Splice together my mobile eyes, wave speech, moon's milk oozing from the sleeve of the sky. Under my flared red velvet dress, my petticoats in black slippers, let me plie on polished wood floors. See myself in multiple mirrors, while Miss Scodell watches, my mother's hands on the keys of another piano concerto, playing the fable of my family, infused with desire, let me remember watching what caused fear the first time the screen came down, the lights went up, the first train wreck. Let me recreate unspoken wonder, my parents transparent, hardly touching, let me go back. Oh, I love where that went. That was a surprising turn there at the end. And I think that's one of the ways I think if you keep pushing yourself, surprising things come out. I think that was apparent in that phone. That was really cool. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. That was Karen Marker with uh, To the Created World. Have a nice night, Karen. Um, next up is Audrey Friedman. I think we have um, one, two, three, four. We have four poets left. And well, we could probably do a couple extra poems. But hey, Audrey, how are you doing tonight? Hi. Terrific. Um, once again, the prompt surprised me. <laughs> That's great. That's um, what we try to do. <laughs> the, the sentence could have gone on for way longer, but so be it. Recreation. On the beach, I keep one tiny stitch of my mother alive. Try to preserve the synapses between periods of crazy, the quiet between percussive thuds and amphetamine highs, crests and tumbles. There is stasis between the water's advance and retreat, between swallowing and spitting back everything. A time with no charged arcs, no sparks, just a predictable but graceful dance like my two needles execute, sliding into each woolly loop, then out, knitting something to gift to my daughters, something more certain than sand. Uh, great choice to end it there. Great ending. And I love the opening line, too. So it's like a perfect sandwich of great lines. 
Um, oh, thank you. Yeah. That means a lot. And I do have a second one. Sure. Did you email it to me so I can show it or not? Um, I didn't. Okay. Well, just listen then. That's fine. So what, That's what fine. is it? Um, so it's a two-part poem. The mm-hmm. first part, I'm just going to preface it, is me sinking into a nightmare. And the second movement is me rising back up. Um, this is... Um, going to be included in an upcoming anthology by Rick Christensen and Damian Hay, Dead Pets Anthology. Mm-hmm. It was originally published in Diner, February 2004. Oh, I remember Diner. I miss that journal. Is it still around? I don't think it is. No. I had a poem no. in there. It was one of my favorite, actually. I loved all it the work. Nice. Yeah, yeah. Eve Rutka did a really nice job with that. So this is called Ice is Growing Up the Wall. Dripping stalactites from the ceiling, someone I don't know pushes my buttons. Crust of frost melts. My reliefs brief-lived. Remember, I kind of forgot to feed the dog. Remember, I'm guilty of her second death. I loved her muzzle. What's happening? Happening isn't the puzzle I love. My first, second, my first death second in the gilded mirror, I feel that I'm the dog, almost dead, my feet semi-forgotten. If I hadn't remembered that relief is but melted frost, would crust or buttons pushed push me to know my inside out self that thrives briefly beneath a ceiling of stalactites the wall growls down the ice oh great great ending there the wall growls down the ice that's beautiful thanks for sharing that karen great poem thank you Uh, it was karen marker uh, with a pair of poems and I forgot I'm sorry I forgot to share I, I promised I would the link to uh, Mike Bales um, let me put these in this is the I'll put it in Facebook and you, if you want to check that out that library interview that Mike did I'm putting them in the in the chat windows too um, okay let's go we have a couple people left let's go to Brian O'Sullivan hello hey Brian how you doing tonight I'm doing okay thank you so what do you got to share so I have, so I've published very few poems, but there's one that I published that actually fits the prompt. Oh, that's, um, that's the first time that happened to me. So I sent you a link. Yeah, and from One Art, which I love that journal with Mark Donowski. It's a great, yeah, a great turnaround. The submissions are just emails. Um, awesome. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hold on. Oops. Sorry. Oops, sorry. Yeah, I, I called Audrey Friedman Aaron, Karen Marker. I'm sorry. I got I got confused. <laughs> I'm sorry, no Audrey. Problem. No problem. <laughs> yeah, that was Audrey Friedman. I'm sorry. I was looking at the wrong Karen thing. Marker did beautiful work. I'm honored to be called Karen. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're both great. But uh, yeah, sorry about that, Audrey. Um, okay. But anyway, Brian, so this is One Art. Okay. Um, one Art right, is uh, OneArtPoetry.com. This is uh, from 2021. But Mark Donowski, great editor. Um, you, you just email him poems as submissions, and then he replies in like a day or two. It's amazing. But um, no, he's great. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so what's this poem? Tell us a little bit about it, and then go ahead and read it. Okay, so it um, it's it's based on an experience with my mom who had Alzheimer's at the time, 
And the unstuck part uh, is actually kind of a reference to unstuck in time from Kurt Vonnegut. Oh, yeah. Um, So it's kind of about, you know, being unstuck in time because of uh, memory issues and because of the anxiety of the character, me, uh, listening to the memory issues. So that's what it is called unstuck. Uh, Is there a newsreel, dear? Mom asks in the darkened cinema, her voice bubbly. And I want to tell her that there are no newsreels anymore. Edsels are gone and flying Gloreans are coming. But I know that for her, newsreels are now and breathing buttered popcorn. I feel my hand clenching under my seat's arm, picking at dry bubble gum. And I don't want her to hear sirens. So as the screen flickers, eyes smiling through tightened jaws, whisper back, no newsreel today, Mom, but watch. (laughs) Another great ending there, too. Unstuck by Brian O'Sullivan. Thanks so much for sharing that, Brian. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, again, Brian O'Sullivan from One Art. That's oneartpoetry.com. Um, let's go to um, Bishwajit Mishra. Hey, Bishwajit. How are you doing tonight? Hi, Tim. Good evening. Good evening, everybody. Yeah, it's great to see you. So uh, what do you have to share? Uh, I sent a point, a prompt poem, but my Mine don't match with the sizes, you have, the lengths you have, both all of you have. Uh, it's called rumbling sinister. Uh, I think that's wait, what's it's called? Um, the rumbling silencer. The rumbling silencer. Oh, here we go. Okay, so you sent. I see. Okay, the rumbling silencer. <laughs> okay, and so so did you have fun with the prompt? Yeah, actually, the the one I wrote for the prompt. I didn't send. I sent it just now in case we have time. This is the one I had sent a few, written a few weeks ago. Ah. Uh, and uh, I just thought, I think I, that was a one uh, sentence form, uh, but I had a line break somewhere. So I got went and fixed it. Uh, I, I just sent, sent it. Up. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. So I always love prompts, but this was before. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. Well, let's go. Let's, let's hear it. Okay. The rumbling sinusoid. And what, is sinus, what does sinusure mean? That's a word that I have, would have to look up myself. Oh, sinusure, uh, I thought it's uh, the attraction of the eyes or the soul attraction. Oh, that's really interesting. Okay. I like and that I word. have used that word in three of my titles. I just love <laughs> word. It's a good word. I'm going to have to start using that too. I like that. <laughs> my son-in-law asked the same thing. First time we heard, what's, what does it mean? I guess I'm using an archaic. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that's great okay. I'm old school anyway I love that word the rumbling sinuser my aging followed a parallel path my embarrassments grew with the body matured into humor with her accented botched Hindi which might come at times in rare company of lone English words idiot nonsense mispronounced sometimes misapplied I'm not sure if she understood them correctly, but I had seen pictures of me as a few weeks old naked boy in a black and white odd size photos, the edges of which were corroding as if melting away inside of creepy, wavy frames, which had grown smooth with time and grime in a house of smudgy mud walls that I have no way of remembering. Though I recall being told that in that house I was born, and they might have grown with me into lime mortar, then into concrete, then her controlling, which I resented like any other child like me. And I remember then, grew as well to letting herself be controlled with glee. Might have been some pride too, 
when she would run all and sundry by me, even on short, long distance calls that my brothers had to make for her. But my lag kept growing until after the monsoon was gone. And now thunder trails the dying sparkle of my mother like it has always been. Oh, beautiful. I love that ending, the rumbling sinusure. I love that word. I'm going to have to use it all the time now. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. Do you want to do the other one? It's up to you. I think we have time. If you have time, I don't mind. That was actually, uh, I didn't finish it, but that was the proud poem I sent it. And then I, I picked this one. So actually, there are two important girls in my life. That's my mom. and. <laughs> <laughs> <That's perfect. laughs> Okay, so it's not too long. Okay, 27. Okay. It's again weird title, Salubrious Leftover. <laughs> <laughs> An evening of verse is always something I look forward to. And before it ends, I come. I come up from my basement office to my calm-looking wife, ready with the reheated pizzas. A couple of nights ago, I was snow it was snowing when my wife suddenly had a Craving for pizzas, a rarity, she she was hesitant as it was a late, cold, wintry, snowy night, and we had already eaten out lunch that day. I was happy to make a run because she rarely wants to eat out. Maybe she's hard to please with a dish, being a good cook herself. I grab the reheated slices and go down back into the virtual meeting of poets to finish the meeting. The heat from a turned-off fireplace radiating, pleasing warm feels better. Sometimes a turned-off engine, warm with potentials prime, ready to breathe through the wintry night. Food becomes its real self, one of the rare occasions. Test is just a sidebar. I hang around a bit while my wife goes to bed, still recovering from being under the weather. I make a few calls, then the messages start to arrive for Holy, the Festival of Colors, coloring a cold gray evening, and I keep re reveling in the twilight of leftover wine, wrapping up the day. Ah, great memory there. Yeah, thanks so much for that. So, Livrius <laughs> Leftover. <laughs> Wonderful. Always a pleasure, Bishop. It's great to hear you. Uh, thank you. Great to thank see you. these poems. Yeah. Have a good night. Yep, take care. Uh, that was Bishwajit Mishra with uh, two poems. Let's go to Kashyana Singh next. Hey, Tim. Can you hear me fine? I can hear you great. Um, yeah, what do you have that you would like to share? How are you doing tonight, first of all? Very well. What a great evening yet again. And I agree with Dick. It was like a masterclass. <laughs> yeah, it's just wonderful. I mean, both both poets had such great insights into poetry. It was yes. really wonderful. Uh, so what do you have that you would like to share? I sent you a poem. It's called, uh, Can Chat GPT Make Butter? <laughs> Very interesting question. I wonder. I think they might they might hire us <laughs> to make butter for them. <laughs> it might be how it turns out. But let's... Uh... <laughs> if, if, we, if we get to singularity, that's going to happen. Yeah, I think so. We'll be like this, the, the labor for the AI, I guess. And, and yes. we'll, we'll be like fixing, we're crawling around fixing the wires will be our job. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so uh, can chat GPT be better? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Are we ready? Yep, go ahead. Yep, okay. Um, the poem's called Can Chat GPT Make Butter? I asked them about making butter. They judged my question a smirk, then asked me a reverse question Do you want a poem? 
want me to do a haiku, a Shakespearean style? Or do you want to butter someone as in trying to ass-lick someone? So is it about the churned white stuff, not white as in white people, not dense, but white as in milky white, beaten into existence? A pint of heavy cream produces approximately one cup of butter. Do you like do you like to do you like it sweet or more salty? You know what I mean? Butter is also quite old fashioned, a generosity type habit, mostly extinct. Farms in past called it a separation method. I think it is transformation, a cloud like fluffiness, pale colored, settled into hand pressed solid, utterly and butterly delicious. Okay, tell me how I can help you with butter. Because only if you ask, I tell. Become better than the bitter butter you bought. So stop wasting my time and yours. So stop testing if my knowledge is any better than the butter left from the buttermilk of ripped better cream. I'm stumbling because your queries are not succinct, nor are they focused on better outcomes for butter in terms of timing or procedures, nor do I care eco chamber the pixelated eyes of my therapist <laughs> that's great hyven and uh, that wonderful haiku at the end and so such a big transition i love that thanks for sharing that uh that was thank uh, you Tim. yeah that was kashiana singh with can chat gpt make butter uh wonderful thanks kashiana thank you um okay so that is everybody on the zoom let me pick up a couple poems before we wrap it up um let's see <clears throat> We have um, um, Nivedita Karthik is here. Let me, I think I'm going to do, let's see if we can do it like this. How do we, I'm trying to figure out how we did Nivy's. There was a way that it was easier to do with the video. How was it? Well, let's download it. I can't remember. <laughs> okay, so Nivedita sent us a video. Um, let's go, we'll, we'll come back once it's downloaded. Let's go to um, um, Alex Retti has a uh, poem here, or two poems. Poems for the Rattlecast. No comments from Alex Reddy, but uh, here they go. Um, Gentility. Let's take a look at these and see what Alex would like us to read. Gentility. A gin and tonic in the nearly over afternoon, the sobs of the morning women waft. It's cruel to say, but true, so pleasantly, through the house and the screen veranda, that death becomes another little treat we give ourselves for living. It's a bit like Christmas Eve bereavement. You put on your best cufflinks and bow tie and brace yourself for the crowd, hoping all the while you're doing it the way mummy taught you. Everyone envies the dead except the dying, she used to say, and sweat appears like raindrops on your wrists as you remember. Oh, that is a wonderful poem, Gentility. And then in a second little poem, too, let's read that as well. Um, uh, this is a, a poet who's new to me, but it's wonderful. Um, a less venerated saint. My symbols are gestet gestetner, glue and staple. I sat here at my little table while others went abroad. Do you find it, as I did, odd that I left odds and ends while colleagues had a called, I had called my friends? Left vitae, epistles, gospels, and acts? I envied them, but died without regrets. Some are made fishers of men, others are menders of nets. Hey, wonderful. I mean, the formal poetry, you can hear how, how great that is. 
Um, okay, let's go to... Yeah, thanks for sharing those. Once again, the poet, that was Alex Reddy. Uh, great stuff. And it's Alex Reddy, R-E-T-T-I-E. So next time, if you send more poems, um, join the Zoom link or um, share, a, share a link to uh, your website or something so we can share that. But that's Alex Reddy. Great poems. Thanks for sharing, Alex. Um, Katie Dozier has a prompt poem. Um, she says, I try to make it as long as possible. It turns out to be 14 lines. So Katie likes to do these uh, sonnet minus ones, which are 13. So that's, that's a, a funny there. Um, but she pushed it to 14 for this prompt. Here is some people burn through. Uh, let's, let's hear this one. Some people burn through sentences like their cigarettes, the additives of adjectives, the hot ash of the past tense, the smoke of hypotheticals wafting up to an ice blue sky. And one such man sparks under strung up bulbs flicked on despite the afternoon as if to say, I glow for me alone. And he lights the next one with a death of fists first, never pausing, a cycle lit by the exclamation dangling from his weathered lips, never mind the clatter of keys jittering, clipped to his hip. <laughs> That's great. Some people burn through, um, pushing it there, Katie. Um, Katie is the, the, or the main host, and I co-host the, uh, the poetry space on Twitter. So if you're on Twitter, follow Katie underscore Dozier to find that space. Really fun. We also have a, um, we made it a podcast because everybody asked if we do it. So we, it's recorded and, and it's a podcast too. So find us at, just go to like, like Spotify or whatever and type in the poetry space. And that's a freewheeling discussion about poetry every Thursday. This week we're talking about metaphors. So uh, appropriate for Brian Morrison coming up. Now I got some tragic news to share. Um, Wendy Barker um, died this week, last night. Um, and Eric Campbell, who's a good friend of hers, um, asked me if I would read this poem to share. She was uh, 80 years old. She was on Rattlecast number... Um, what number of the Rattlecast was she on? Number 35. So if you'd like to see an episode with Wendy Barker, just a wonderful poet, wonderful human being. She was one of the early, the first year of the Rattlecast. She was a guest on uh, Rattlecast 35. Um, her, uh, what was it? Um, Sing Out of Blackbird was her, her last book um, that we were talking about there anyway. Um, but So do check out that, that Rattlecast. Um, here's Wendy's poem just in, in memory of her. Maybe I'll make a daily poem, one of hers that we published. Um, this is What Surfaces by Wendy Barker. So let's close out um, before the haiku, and uh, we'll read this poem. Uh, what Surfaces by Wendy Barker. Another chip in the white enameled sink, only three years old. How I've tried to keep it pristine, and yet stainless steel pots scrape it till the black cast iron breaks through. What's below a surface gloss? Now the flesh on my hands has grown so thin the layers underneath show through, rivery veins and knobby metacarpals, knuckles like pebbles, like rocks. I've bordered my rosebuds with stones from Blanco Creek. How long did it take to shape those irregular rounds and ovals? Our house, built of blocks mined from the quarry only five miles up the road, limestone formed in the Paleozoic era, my favorite paperweight, a fossilized clam I found in the backyard, remains from the time the land around us lived under the ocean. Something so pocked, wizened, holding my papers in place. Arriving at the Grand Canyon, we've all peered down at those dozens of rock layers, granite, dolomite, sandstone, shale, basalt, formed two million, maybe two billion years ago. And who would want to mend that great magenta, purple, blood-shaded rip in the earth's surface? It's what we come for, to gawk at all those layers exposed. 
So a beautiful poem in memory of Wendy Barker. Just a wonderful, I mean, she was a real deal of a poet and a human being. I hope everybody will check out that Rattlecast, check out her books, uh, where, you know, poets live on in their books and their poems. So um, thanks for sharing that, Eric, and for letting me know really sad news that, that Wendy passed on. Um, all right, so we're going to wrap up the show now with our Saiku. And the Saiku for this week was inspired by this article um, from the College of Computer and Mathematical Sciences at the University of Maryland. So uh, here is the article. And uh, we, have, we have new NASA DART data prove viability of asteroid deflection as planetary defense strategy. And so what happened here, if you remember that DART mission where they crashed a small um, satellite into an asteroid to see, what, see if they could deflect it possibly to save the planet in one of those disaster movie scenarios. Uh, what they found analyzing the data at the University of Maryland was that it deflected the asteroid more than they even expected. So they, about three times more. And what happened, it turns out, is um, they had the, uh, the energy from the impact that they calculated, but they didn't include the amount that the ejected matter pushing against the asteroid um, would you know, push the asteroid in the other direction. You know, that whole, um, what's it, Newton's second law of motion. And so, um, and so um, you know, it pushed the asteroid more than they even thought. So, so it worked even better than they planned by a factor of three, which is good news if you would like the Earth not to be obliterated by an asteroid or a comet. So uh, really good news from the University of Maryland, um, and really fun to see that. It was really cool watching that impact um, as the asteroid hit. So here is the Saiku inspired by that science story. And once again, the Saiku, the whole point is just show that news happens besides for politics and, you know, the stuff everyone's talking about. There's always science news going on. So here's a pose respond haiku. And uh, here it is. First kiss, nudging the comet away. First kiss, nudging the comet away. That is my Saiku for today, and that is the show for today. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. It's been wonderful. Jennifer Reeser was a great guest. Brian Morrison, great with a metaphor. We had the poet respond early on. Really wonderful stuff. Next week's guest in the Rattlecast is going to be Rachel Custer. Um, Rachel's book, Flatback Sally Country, is her second out from Terrapin Books. She is one of the few people who's been a return guest. Um, I like to have you know, people who are especially... Um, you know, great poets, but but aren't aren't don't have a publicity that they should. I think Rachel Cluster is one of those. She should be winning awards. She's really wonderful. Uh, Flatback Sally Country is her new book, um, writing about um, um, people that aren't that don't have poems written about them. You know, rural people, um, marginalized people in their own right from from rural Midwest. Um, their persona poems in the kind of mode of um, what is that Edgar Lee Masters book about all the people portraits they're 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 poems in that vein just a great book though flatback sally country by rachel custer that's gonna be next week's guest the prompt next week um inspired by jennifer reeser is uh this right here write a poem in the voice of one of your ancestors and use formal verse of some kind so that's gonna be the prompt for next week think about one of your ancestors anybody can be somebody a great story a, a tragedy anything you want think of one of your ancestors that you know you know you can know a lot about you can know a little about be making it up but write a poem in their voice and then also use formal verse of some kind that is going to be your prompt for next week and then we will talk to rachel custer on next week's show rattlecast number 186 monday march 20th the regular time 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific hope you enjoy your week hope you write a great poem for the prompt and uh, we will see you then have a good night